podcast that investigates the experience of self, the events that have shaped our world, the people that we have become, by focusing on the person first. So what was your um, earliest experience of somebody who was good at life? It's not my first experience of someone who's good at life, but I'll, let me tell you about good at life. So um, <laughs> uh, it's an important person in my career. So um, I, I grew up in Northumberland, middle of Northumberland Moors, very much sort of away from pop culture and away from anything to do, very isolated. But we all made a lot of music. We were, it was the one thing you could do to pass the time was playing in bands and so on. Yeah. Um, and then I, when I was... 1819, I went to Cambridge University, which wasn't what was expected of me. Um, it was my, my parents wanted me to go to a proper university like Sheffield. Um, but uh, To learn what? Well, I was very interested in the time in um, environmental issues, sort of, I say ahead of my time. I felt, I felt more like a lone voice then than people would do now at that age. But if you remember... You know, in the late 80s, there was a lot of that uh, of sort of, uh, you know, Sting Rainforest Foundation. There was, sort of, there was a pop yeah. culture, environmental thing going on. What I wanted to do was study um, ecology because I wanted to, like, be as close as I could to studying, if you like, a, a green uh, degree. Now, if you want to do that these days, the opportunities are available. Sure. But th- there weren't really any decent courses. Or the ones that were, they felt far too much like a maths degree for me, like an equation that defines the distribution of daisies across a field. Or it's like, you know, it, it, it wasn't, it didn't feel like saving the world. No. It, it felt like <laughs> statistics. Yeah. Um, what, so what the next best thing I, I found was geography because people often have their, their geography, the knowledge of geography disrupted by how rubbish school geography is. And also the echo of, Victorian geography, which is learning the names of places and, and, and oxbow lakes, all that and kind of stuff. Well, nothing, wrong, nothing wrong with all. There's nothing wrong with that stuff. But you know, to, to look at geography in the broadest way, um, it's the synthesis of all the other uh, sciences. Um, in which it's like, well, we've got this physics and chemistry and sociology and economics. How does it all play out when oh, yeah, you put yeah. it on planet Earth? Yeah, yeah. And so, on the physical geography side, you're more looking at the bits that aren't people. Yeah, but you've got to know chemistry for atmospheric chemistry, physics for climate modelling, uh, biology for you know uh, e- ecology things. Yeah. It's, it's like a synthesis of all those sciences. And then on the human geography side, so the biggest thing that's happening on the planet is people. Yeah, the movement and of then, people. And, and, you're and... Stu- so you've, got a, you've got the whole history in there and philosophy and history and philosophy of science and all these different strands within those disciplines, such as, you know, Marxist thought and critical theory and all these things. They're all in the, in the degree. You're, wow. you're studying the whole of the planet and how people interact with it and with each other. Sure. So well, that's a pretty broad spread. So it's like people go, geography degree, that's not very exciting. It's like, no, this is the biggest degree that you can do. Yeah. And uh, Did you know that going in or did you find that out? Uh, I think I, well, I was surprised by how broad it was. Yeah. Um, I knew that it was a place where I could study how people interact with the environment, um, yeah. which was the, you know, the, sort of the green angle I was going for what I what really threw me is my literally my first lecture they gave us was on a course which was the history and philosophy of geography so it's a meta discussion we're looking at in this year's <laughs> thing you don't know like it, in, in, in in the in the 1890s geography was this yeah but then it became this and um 
it's a sort of thing where it was viewed as unscientific. It was just naming places and cataloging things. Sure. So then there were the, everyone tried to rebel against that by be, by being very scientific and uh, you know there has to be an equation to define everything. And that's where and when I was at school, there was a lot of that coming through in um, the coursework. You know, there's like scientific models of how towns are distributed with this big at this regular interval and that big at that regular interval of trying to apply too much science yeah. to it. Yeah, because so, the, the data sets are so complex and being affected by so many other attributes yeah, around so it. Yeah, so this, this, this is the reason I left academia in the end, because the whole thing goes, in order to justify it as being science, we have to define it with a... Uh, an equation, sure, and then you go. Well, this equation only invo- uh, only works in a controlled this, environment. It's yeah. like, well, this is the biggest uncontrolled environment. It's just like the, your your open system is the universe, you know. So it's like I can't give you an equation to model how everything is going to happen in the universe. Though to be fair, you know things like weather forecasting, where they imply quite a lot of, of attention to it. Okay, um, but well, uh, so actually, I, when I went on to specialise on it, was in, was climate science through studying uh, via glaciers. So I became a glaciologist um, wow. through that course, and I did a study in the Alps where I was looking at how the glaciers were melting, looking over the short time scale of uh, one summer season, and I was like firing lasers at it and making commuter models at the beginning of the summer and the end of the summer, then subtracting one from the other to find out um, the melt. you know, how, how much it melted, yeah. and going back to Victorian photographs and matching them up with modern aerial photographs to show how oh, over a century geez. it had melted. And all I can tell you is that now uh, the glacier's not there anymore. Oh, no. Um, so, gosh. Uh, I left that world behind a long time ago. But uh, What preceded uh, the – so you used the phrase wanting to save the world. Yeah. And I I think that's that's an interesting, you know, mm-hmm. phrase to use because what if one is involved in anything towards environmental mm-hmm. sustainability, you know, the government governance of how people – how companies run and exploit the world mm-hmm. – um, you are looking at saving something for a future generation. You're looking at mm. you know, changing the way that it's being abused, you know, to a, an end. Yeah. So what preceded that feeling of wanting to do that in um, your life? I would say, so I've made my living out of love of music, but my other love has been a love of nature, M- more so as a child. So, you know, I can remember being... It's been five or so, and going in the woods and knowing all all the different mushrooms and that. Sort Who taught of thing. you that, or did you learn oh, yourself? Taught myself, really. Yeah. I remember definitely remember at the age of seven, I could identify every breeding bird in Europe because uh, I had a book with them in and I learned them. This is like a sort of uh, it's a bit of a like you know Asperger power kind of you know how, what did you do when you were seven? I learned every oh, single bird, every, every single bird in in, in Europe. Um, That's fantastic. And uh, there was nothing much. To, do where I grew up. So I spent a lot of time walking in the woods and building ponds. And I was, I was one of those like not good at sports. Uh, so I would try and get out of games lessons sure. by saying, hang on, if I don't do the games <laughs> lesson, there's an abandoned wasteland with a, with a pond in the middle of, of, of the school. If I renovate that for you, will you, will you be okay with that? So there's a couple of like the not sporty kids and we like dug out the pond, put in a pond liner, planted it up, uh, entered it into like, you know, Britain in bloom competitions. So it, was sort, it was sort of, um, a defense mechanism against boredom in some ways. And I think my life's gone a long way away from that now, but I still find if I need to calm down, then, you know, gardening is just being in touch with nature is uh, a very grounding thing. Half my family's Scandinavian and, uh, you know, there's a lot more focus there on the value in life is on, 
the intersection between family and outdoor space. Yeah. Um, you know, that whole of Finland takes a month off to go to, and be with their family by the lakes yeah. in, in the summer. And, you know, that's, that's of more value than getting some retweets on your acerbic comment on Twitter and you know, whatever you can be chasing. You realize your, your question was uh, someone who's good at life. Yeah. That's a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about that first. Uh, so when I went to, uh, so I went to Cambridge, I was saying, how did I end up in Cambridge? Well, by accident, but I was recommend, someone said I should. And I was like, oh, okay, I will then. Um, and I met a guy called Cameron. Um, and uh, it's a thing where, you know, you're in your own world in one place and then university throws all these people together. And I thought I was like a good musician because I was, you know, I'm in bands and I've gone, I've saved up all my money to go to a recording studio and made something and then once I got to university, I realized how irrelevant it was because I've been not plugged into popular culture. So I met Cameron and, and he, 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 by his own accounts, can't sing, can't dance, can't play an instrument. However, when I met him, he was, um, uh, he just formed a band called New Atlantic, um, a song called I Know that was one of the first rave tracks to go into the charts. So wow. there he was 19 and... Uh, I met him and, and I was like, oh, I, I've made this cassette of my school band. He's like, oh yeah, I'm number 12 in the charts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> All right, so on competition. <laughs> okay. um, and, um, and he was like, you know, sort of, uh, uh, hang on just a moment. I've got to go down to the coin payphone box and talk to Annie Nightingale on Radio 1. And there's people banging on, on, on no. the phone box going, I want to call my mum at home. I'm on Radio 1! <laughs> um, so you said good at life. It's just so... Uh, you know, it's like, okay, so he you know, gets to go to Cambridge and then he gets into the charts and then, um, hi, hi Cameron, if you ever listen to this, um, and then it's like, oh, I'll go back. And so he left university to do the, uh, the chart thing for a bit, came back, got a first, um, went into advertising, went to the top of advertising, went into, um, uh, the film industry, became the head of Fox movies in the UK. That wasn't enough. Runs a half marathon on the way to, uh, work every day. That wasn't enough. Runs a health food Instagram a a account. Blah blah blah. It's like, can you not just be the best at one thing? And 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 he was. And he, we formed the uh, my bands, the Young Punks, together. So basically, the way that his influence on me yeah. was, I came out of this background of let's say music, proper music, chord changes, singing songs, uh, solos, improving your technical skills on the instrument. There's all stuff you get taught you should do in in a music education. And then here was him. He didn't play, sing. He couldn't do, didn't know anything about music. And he was having hit records. And, yeah. And, and he was going and like playing at raves in the, you know, some of you know, some acid house, warehouse, early 90s yeah. kind of things. And it's like, it's a whole other world. And what I think he did was he taught me there's more values in music than the ones I'd learned. So I've been taught, yeah. for example, sort of like complexity is better than simplicity. Change is better than sameness, let's say. Whereas in dance music, there's an effect that sounds have on human beings yep. that happen through repetition. Sure. You only get the effect through repetition. Right. And through the slow building up of yeah. elements. Um, it's not to sound like some kind of foreplay analogy or something, but, you know, it's like the same thing over and over yeah. with subtle Hypnotic. changes yeah. affects humans at a physical level. Yeah. And I think if you look at the history of music, you'll find there's always been two strands of what music's for uh, and how it behave, interacts with us biologically. Let's imagine we're about uh, an ancient tribe or we're abandoned on a desert island and we've got to make our own culture anew. What you're going to find is half the music is a storytelling function of sort of shamanic, you know, sort of we tell our stories through this. I talk about my experience through this. We create shapes over the chaos of life 
through this. The other half is the sort of around the fireside, something goes on and on the same, and gets bigger and bigger, and we get into a frenzy. Mm. And my entire musical education didn't teach me anything about any of that. Yeah. The fact that if you have the same thing over and over, then a subtle change and a subtle change, and it plays out over four hours, you're in a, a headspace which you can't be got to through, oh, it was really good, that modulation into the second chorus. Not that there's no value in that. Is that because you were teaching like equal temperament Western music? You were being taught that type of... Yeah, I think, I think it's that that's, yeah. you know, or just, you know, you're influenced by what you hear and who you meet. And, sure. And, when, and so I'd met people that were like, have you heard this album by John Coltrane? And that's talking about great music. Right. And then I meet someone that says that, and a minute later, the filter's open to, that sounds like a 303. Yeah, quite good at 303. That is equally a value. And I think that has set me up in my life because now in my professional career whether i'm working on my own music um in the young punks or producing for other artists mm. many an electronic artist what i do is i form an interface between the worlds of electronic music be it hip-hop grime jungle drum and bass house music with uh the, the whole history of like pop classical jazz music and wherever any of those skill sets have to interface i've sort of stood on both sides of that fence yeah so um you know, day to day, what I tend to do is I'll work with dance producers, electronic producers, and they work on a laptop on tour in a hotel room. And they're amazing at understanding the zeitgeist, knowing what bass sound and kick sound is trendy at the moment, uh, setting the whole cool framework. But then if they want to record a singer that's sounding a certain way or add an orchestra to the track or put in a disco brass section, it's like, well, I've got no idea where to start. I know what it wants to sound like. But they don't know how to do it. Yeah. So... I'm sort of the interface between these two different worlds of music. Yeah. And those interfaces intersected when I met uh, Cameron. So I've got to ask a question, because you listed things that happened to Cameron. Yeah. That I think society would absolutely put a tick in the box of, is this successful? Should someone be happy? How did Cameron, as a person, come across? Not the things that happened to him, but in terms of you saw him as an individual experiencing the world. And did would, was he super happy and... You know, what was that experience like? Not even happy as a, as a uh, you know. I mean, I'm, okay, I'm loath to talk in personal terms about a friend in a public sure. context. I think that one of the things that happens when you go from, as so I went to school at the, at, um, in the, the second most northerly comprehensive school in England. So my background is northern comprehensive. And then I went to Cambridge. You meet a lot of people who have this, um, public school confidence. I mean, I know a lot of Etonians and sure. they, they, each school breeds a type. Sure. And the main thing they breed is you can call it entitlement if you're being negative about it, but you know, self-belief and confidence. Completely. And um, it's just shocking when you come from an environment where you've never met anyone like that and they stride up to you and shake your hand and look you in the eye and say something confidently. And you've, you've just never met anyone like that before. And you realise, well, these are the people who are going to be running the country. Um, <laughs> and they've already got the confidence out, out, out of their background. And interestingly, Cameron doesn't have that background. He was coming from the northwest of England. I was from the northeast of England. There's some very funny footage online of him on the Hitman and Her show, um, talking with a, like, a, a strong northwest accent and, and like rave curtains hairstyles. <laughs> and that's, that's gone. But I think that what was interesting was the, the commonality was that we were both 
maybe outsiders, outsiders from this the sort of the public school cliche trope of Oxbridge, which isn't all there is. There's a lot of diverse people. I mean, I was there at the same time as you know, say Zadie Smith um, or Thandie Newton, yeah. you know, and th- those kind of people don't come necessarily from that background. And then also, I was there with Sasha Baron Cohen, who. Gosh, you look really young. I thought you were a bit younger than me. You're doing well. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um, so um, so he, we shared that sort of outsider status from the cliche of Oxbridge, but I think he had that sort of drive to succeed. Where did um, that come from in him? I don't know. No? Never asked him? They say that the way to be good in conversations and and I don't know. Okay. Now, now I'm Who's talk- they? Okay. So now I'm talking from my... Uh, Asperger's perspective of we have been told the way you've meant to interact with other humans in order to be polite is ask them things about themselves <laughs> you meet someone you must ask them things about themselves I'll tell you what it feels like to me it yeah. feels like being nosy right so I I have very close friends and I'll go and, and, and it's like oh you know how were they what's going on in their life I don't know are they dating anyone I don't know didn't you ask them no they tell me if they want to. I'll talk to people. I'll talk to them about personal things. We're doing it right now. Yeah. But my um, emotional response to asking people about themselves is just a bit rude. It's like if they, if they want to tell me about themselves, they can. It's nosy to sort of. Okay, this is, I've, I'm really fascinated by this. Um, I think I, I definitely came from a, so there's a bit of, I went to comprehensive and then public school mm-hmm. and then at 15 got kicked out and I, they got kicked out of the next uh, three colleges I went to. I just was yeah. very badly behaved. Wow, you, 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 you don't come across as the rebel now. So. <laughs> rebel He's wearing house. a white shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so at, then at like 19, I had to kind of like find my own job. Mm-hmm. But I studied photography and music. Uh, and I, I loved that very much. But I went to work in a bank and I, I did well for my relationship piece in there. So I, was, I think the only skill I really had was I could speak well to people. Mm-hmm. But I'd always started out from the angle that you described, one of, well, let's don't bother people about their lives. If they mm-hmm. wanted to tell you anything, they'd tell you themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And over the time, I don't know if it's, it's not a confidence I'm aware of, but I, I feel like it's fine to ask that because some of the best conversations or some of the good friendships I've made mm-hmm. have come from talking to people and asking about their lives, right? Mm-hmm. And now I think about, and so I, I get where you're coming yeah. from entirely, um, uh, uh, that thought process. But in your job as well, you are a consultant, right? So there's a big part of what you're doing is you're you're helping someone get from one stage to another stage. Yeah. And you plug that gap, right? Yeah. With all of your knowledge and your skills. Yeah. And so do you not ask people why? Yes. I think it's very important to, if you're make okay, if you're making something, you can't make the thing unless you know what you're trying to make and why you're trying to make it. And I, um, I think ba- if you talk about music, bands in the past, often they could only make the sound that was available due to the tools that were there for them and, and, and what they'd been exposed to. So you know, pick any band in the seventies or Roxy music. They had Brian Eno. He had yeah. an ES. You know, synth it's like, it's, you've got those two, or I mean, make it strip it back to, you know, some garage band or something. You use the instruments you had and they make a certain noise. And the bands you hear are the same ones who play in the clubs or the ones that your local radio station play. There's a limited pool, but for artists now, um, you can make any sound you want because your computer comes free with a million pound recording studio loaded into it. Sure. Um, 
and you can hear anything because you can stream every piece of music. Your, your record collection isn't the 10 vinyl you've managed to save up and you're going to listen to them until you know everything, you've read everything on the liner notes. You're skipping around the entire, you know, you've got everything immediately available. And that can, in, and then you've got also the sort of music business pressure on this where there's the committee of the A&R and the manager and the co-writer and the co-producer where there's like 10 people giving input on what a song should be like. All of this produces a, a lack of character and a lack of direction. The most exciting artists are always ones that have a thing they want to say and a reason they want to say it, which you know, you've got to put walls around what you're doing. And the walls might have been there because, okay, Liam Gallagher can only sound like Liam Gallagher. Strangely, Noel Gallagher is now proving that Noel Gallagher can sound like other things. But, mm. you know, some people, they can only do one thing. Sure. They, they, you know, Muddy Waters was never going to play bebop. He's just great at play, being Muddy Waters. And that's why he's so good, because he's nailed being himself. Yeah. So. Oh, well, nailed being that version of himself, right? Yes. Okay. And uh, yeah, well, don't get me. Well, but there, there is well, a, nuance a conversation there, isn't there? Of, yes. And. Um, Oh, you see, there's a whole other rabbit hole going down there. Well, it's like, does does the persona hide the person or reveal the person? Right. So, now, I yeah. think that's fascinating because yeah. I know I've met people that is their limitation, yeah. and they're happy to keep running that. So we had um, so I have um, my own podcast, the Young Punks FM podcast, uh, which is music and chat um, and electronic music, and we had a long conversation, which I think got cut out of the previous episode to last. We were asking which is more. So as a performer, you've meant to be, let's say, better slash more than the audience in as much as they have paid to experience you. You're not right. paying to experience them. Right. It's your duty Same as DJ. To, to be uh, hyper, to be more than reality. Sure. So the question, so you have to, uh, uh, and it enables you to express aspects of yourself by putting on a persona. But if you look at the most extreme version, you're saying Reginald Dwight is that the real Elton John or is Elton John the real Elton John? So, and then if you look at the, the David Bowie before he became David Bowie, it's like may, maybe your, your simplistic analysis is that one is like the real person and then they act a theatrical role over the top of it. But then if you're dealing with people at a time where you couldn't express your sexuality in real life, mm. but on stage you can dress flamboyantly and camp around with your band members and it's acceptable. Yeah. You know, is, is, is Ziggy Stardust the real character or, or is, what was David Bowie's real name? Insert the name of that guy. Who had, you know, next to no charisma. Yeah. The same person. Yeah. Which one's the real one? Yeah. And I, I have a particular love, love of how Eminem played with this, early in his career. I feel like Eminem is now a bit of a self-parody. Um, you know, the thing he ha he's had to say, he's, you know, we we've had our time for it to some extent. When he initially entered the world, he did songs where he could be, so the, the, the he could be Marshall Mathers in which he's talking about real things in his life. Yeah, real his things daughter, that, his, his daughter, wife, his yeah. wife, and, you know, issues that we can relate to. Mm. Then he has Eminem and Eminem is your standard pop star layer. Of, I'm a rapper. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So, um, I can say bigger and bolder things. I can boast about myself with no lack of self-confidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I can say outrageous things and he's like, what the fuck are you going to do? Here? I'm, I'm, I'm the artist. And then he has Slim Shady on top of it, who is a cartoon character way beyond reality where you know that if he, he will do things which, you know, he doesn't believe, but just to get an effect, or it's it's totally divorced from reality. 
And the beauty of some of his early work is he could flit between those characters sentence by sentence in a song. And, yeah. the, and the listener, without realising it, would understand when he says that. Yeah, the narrative. He's, yeah. he's Slim Shady yeah. and he's just messing about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The skit bit yeah. as well, yeah. But the bit when he reveals a bit of, you know, heartache. It's sure. Like, it's like, oh, that, that's the real guy that's in the there. That's the real guy, yeah. So this is the challenge for performers. On one hand, integrity is important. On the other hand, no one wants to see a normal person. They want to see a rock star. But then is the rock star revealing something about the real person? Yeah. We've, again, gone off on a tangent there. So the question originally was, do you feel on on a personal level comfortable in inquiring as to somebody's artistic Method oh, yeah. or their artistic intent. I think often, yes. Because uh, is that separate from yeah, the that's, person? Yeah, that's different for you? from personal discussion by a long way. Are you interested in people? I'm interested in a small number of people. What I find is I, I generally go through life and I can give or take most people. And occasionally I'll meet somebody and it's like, I'm very happy to spend as much time as you like, you know, talking about stuff. And there's no, it's fairly obvious and it's fairly instant. Um, I think I think that's the answer. I'm, I'm in, I think that's I'm a really beautifully honest people. answer because yeah. I think a lot of people are mainly interested in, in a small number of individuals uh. that maybe they've given their time to, or maybe they've get they get something, you know, of, of pleasure by interacting with that. I mean, person. I see so many people, and I've got no desire to have any communication with them. I mean, I I don't buy into the whole masculine identity trope of drinking beer with mates, watching football. Oh, I was going to invite you to one of those after this. I mean. <laughs> It's like I could not be less comfortable with any of the above <laughs> or business environment. I mean, I did, ha- I did work in a corporate environment for um, did you? five, six years. Oh, what kind of, just roughly? Oh, well, no, we can talk about it in a moment. Well, oh, it's, sure. Uh, but, you know, through gritted teeth of being subservient to bosses who know less than you and having to work with people who you just can't stand. And it, oh, it's just like the world's full of just people I just have no desire to connect to. But I think, but then what I do have is very long-term relationships with people who I'm ridiculously um, loyal to, with, with, uh, no sense of personal sacrifice. You know, it's just, you just got to build your team, haven't you? Well, your life team. Yeah, just the, pe- the people who, you can't, I mean, it's a big planet, you can't gel with everyone, you know, you just got to find a few people that. Well, you always connected. felt like that. Uh, yes, though, I think it's taken me a long time to build up my team. So I feel like if I think of my childhood, I, there's almost no, I've got no day-to-day contact with anyone from my childhood other than a couple of Facebook friends of people who I, you know, I, I perfectly like and enjoyed some time with, you know, there's maybe two people from university I'm still in touch with. Yeah. But then I think I met more people. There was a question you were going to ask me before. What was it? Let's not lose it. What was the previous thing you asked me? Oh, about working in work. Okay, yes. Well, corporate environment. Save that. Yeah, yeah. One thing I thought was interesting was that um, when I went to university, it feels like you're filtering down to a similar type of person, the type of person who would go to Cambridge University. That's, that's going to narrow the field. And you think you'll get along with people who are like you, same age, uh, similar academic standing. Yeah. And maybe same stuff. I got, got on, I've got, got on with almost no one. I felt totally on my own 
for all of that. And then when I left university, I was just on the dole on housing benefit and, and I was just living out, I went to the other side of uh, Cambridge. In Cambridge is in the middle of a park, there's a lamppost called Reality Checkpoint. And there's various readings of why it's called reality checkpoints. But you know, I think the most obvious one on one side is the university and the other side is, is reality. The world, yeah. And so I moved, you know, a thousand <laughs> metres over into the real world. And then I found myself in a coffee shop. So this is what I'll get on to. I was involved in the early days of the internet. Yeah. And it was, it was the second internet cafe in the country. And it was like an old bookshop with internet terminals when, the, you know, the inter- this is 1994, 1995. Oh, wow. Um, so this so, is like, so, yeah, so, no, nobody, bleeding. Nobody you didn't even email. Yeah. Um, and I'd be sitting at a table with, you know, um, a six-year-old banker, uh, a hippie artist who'd just been released from the mental asylum, a 12-year-old black girl who was the foster daughter of the person who owned the place, um, a guy who was um, uh, a builder, people who ostensibly I had no, nothing in common with. And yeah, we would chat for hours, stay up late, drinking coffee, go to the pub, play play table football together, start companies together, go on holiday together. It it the connection isn't similarity. It's meeting people. It, it's almost like you're better off with the other half of the yin and yang. If you sure. meet, if you meet another one of yourself, sure. What is there to talk about other than be really irritating? It's like an echo chamber. You meet someone who's really different from yourself then you can reveal other worlds to each other. And that's perhaps a thing that's very much lost in the online discourse now, where people are tribally aligning themselves with people who believe the same things, and whereas actually you learn a lot more and develop by meeting people who have very different experiences from yourself. Yeah, that's really um, struck me. That's... um... That's a beautiful little scenario. I, I recently, my, my record label, I say recently, it was about five, six years ago. I signed um, a sort of electronic girl act, girl duo, and they were called Red and Pink, and they've dis- disbanded now. So they were essentially hippie lesbians, and uh, like with backgrounds like living on communes, and they were in this sort of like no, almost no shared experiences between us. And they would be all like breathing and chakras and meditation and blah 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 and very talented but getting nowhere and i'd be all business plan and production sound and market strategy yeah totally but through working with me then their music became more developed more focused like why are you doing this how are you going to do it what are the steps forward yeah and for me when they were being all like astrology at me or something i was like that stuff's just nonsense but i now meditate stroke yoga in my own way for a quarter of an hour before bed every night. That's really good. I've done for half a decade. And um, I used to have really bad insomnia and now I don't. And I took that from being on the road with them. And it's like, we're about to go on stage and they're like, well, we're going to, we're going to do some breathing for for a quarter of an hour. Absolutely. And I threw away 80% of what they said as, you know, hippie nonsense. But the other bit of it, it's yeah. like, well, because they had a different life from me, they were able to bring something new to my life. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. That definitely seems like the right way to to engage with people. Yeah, is to look for the positives and look for the look for the deficit in yourself. Mm-hmm. What was the corporate life? Like? So, um, so when I left university, I I tried being a musician, which involved making electronic music on an Atari ST in my one bedroom shared house housing benefit slum. You know the phase. And then sending uh, re- it on cassettes to uh May I real quick interrupt? Yeah, so yeah. Atari ST. Yeah. 
obviously good sound card, good MIDI capabilities. Sound card didn't make any sound, mate. It was, you oh, know, you had to do everything. Everything you I could it had put- a little um, chip in it. Didn't uh, it? Uh, well, that it was the days before you could do record audio to computers, so it was all MIDI. All MIDI. Uh, apart from, I had the uh, what you wanted was the S one thousand Akai sampler. I had the S O one sampler that you could get like eight things in on a floppy disk. So wow. your vocals for the song had to be like two phrases to leave room for a kick drum and a snare drum yeah. and something you'd sample off someone else's rave. So they had your eight sounds loaded up, and it would all run off MIDI, and then you'd bounce it down to that if you were lucky or cassette otherwise. Yeah. Oh, how the world's changed. <laughs> anyway, that didn't get anywhere just because, you know, I was I, – okay, I, I'll tell you why I didn't get anywhere, but after the next bit. So um, eventually I was like, oh, I've got to get a job, you know, but I didn't really want – I wasn't very – my dad always said – which they, my parents come from the, you know, first generation out of the working classes, get a mm. job, have a sensible job, be a teacher, Completely. get a profession. My dad said, getting a job isn't a consumer activity. Sure. It's, I was told the same thing. Yeah, it's your responsibility. You just do it straight you away. You've got to earn a living. Yeah. You know, uh, you, you don't choose what you want to do. You're lucky to, to earn to a living. To have an option. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but in a competitive jobs market, you will always lose the interview to the person who really wants the job. Yeah, you know, you can't go. Why is it you want to work in pharmaceuticals? What did you What did you apply for then? Actually, I've tried applying for some um, environmental type jobs, but oh, they were so. Was it just admin in an our environmental yeah, office? I know it's all. Yeah, it's all like you know, it's just an open plan office doing spreadsheets and plans, but yeah. If it, I'd always joked I wanted to be an otter warden, which of course I wouldn't want to be an otter warden. It'd be a horrible <laughs> life. But I, what I meant was, if I'm going to do something environmental, I want to be there with the animals, with the nature. Totally. I don't want to be wearing a suit and presenting my pie charts about, you know, something yeah. that happens to be interfacing. Can you go to like a national reserve or like... Uh, yeah. I mean, yes, but you're lost at that age. You don't know what, you know, unless you... Did you have any brothers or sisters? No, it's just me. So, and then how much communication did you have with your parents when you were still in Cambridge, but not yeah, pay uni? phone once a Sunday? You know, why did you not go back home? I mean, I just just okay. The, I was just talking um, uh, to um, the podcast podcast about the Blind Boy Boat Club podcast. Yeah. Did you listen to that? I do. Yeah. And so the most recent one, he's talking about how kids aren't breaking away from home, yeah. and aren't getting the experiences of independence because economically they're not able to leave home. Therefore, they're not taking on the symbolic uh, challenges of adulthood. Sure. And therefore, are not developing psycho- psychologically yeah. as adults because they're not able to. They're not failing like, at adulthood. But there is talk, but you're talking about when you go back home, you're thrown back from being an adult to being a child again. It's yeah. like, in, in many ways, I was cautious to leave home, but I didn't, I can never go back. It's, it's just, it's a step backwards. So, you know... Um, did they invite you back or was your dad and mum saying? It wasn't really done in those days. No. And that now, now it happens. It's Go like, no, it's out the door, you know, yeah. it's, which, is, which is fine. But what was happening was when I was at university, yeah, we had the, the cheering room and all the computers and um, uh, we were just programming web pages the month that the web code was released. And at that point, you know, we were just there. In, in the, the, the internet was an academic environment. So, and, and it was so new that didn't matter how old you were, there was nobody with more than a year's experience of it. Completely. You had a year's experience, you were the world expert. You're all pioneers. And then uh, the Science Park in Cambridge, they were sort of where they were, they were bubbling up these first internet companies, um, uh, Silicon Fan. And um, my best friend who I was living with in this shared house was trying to set up an internet company and no one would invest in it. No one, but everyone's like, so it's like somewhere between a business card and a brochure 
but you can look at it on a, on on the computer. And no one really understood what you know. He was like, saying, <laughs> "Sell your cars online, sell houses online." Sure. You know, it's like, mm, uh, but you know, what, well, I, can I select the right? No, you can't select what font you want it in. You know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It was very early days, but you know, the people we were hanging out with, they were the first of these dot com pioneers. Yeah. Um, and so eventually the, uh, I went to work in uh, a PR and marketing capacity for uh, what was Unipalm, then Pipex, then MFS, then Worldcom, then Verizon, then MCI, wow. however, basically what happened was these little startups were setting up and then the big telecoms company would eat them one at a time. So I sat at the same desk for five years and worked for 10 companies or yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that was, that was you just have to rebrand once a year. And what was your marketing job? Was it digital marketing? Well, um, no, I was essentially, um, well, I started off in PR. I had to be the interface between all these techie nerds who were, were talking about IP addresses and DNS sure. and the um, economics correspondent for the Financial Times. Got it. Saying, uh, well, you know, one day every company will have a website and one day you will be able to run a business from home servicing customers all around the world and they'll buy direct from you without any anybody in between. Yeah. And things were saying that only now are coming true. I, was, I wrote an article called like the, um, the, uh, the fridge on the internet to talk about how your fridge will monitor what you've got in the fridge yeah. and when it's running low, we'll reorder it and it'll be delivered to your house. And yeah. it's like, you know, this was 25 years ago. And yeah. now that sort of thing is only starting to right. modify. The internet of things. I remember things, we used to do, we used to do arty versions of it. We had like a telepoetics event where we'd hold a poetry reading in this internet cafe in Cambridge and a poetry reading in Chicago at yeah. the same time with very primitive black and white video conferencing what you almost couldn't get it was 33k modems yeah 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 you almost couldn't get any video to travel across the internet and we'd read a poet poem on either side of the atlantic one after another in two different coffee shops that's um, do, do you remember dollar poet from the 70s oh uh, um no I've, I've actually okay now you say it, i've heard it but i don't know much about that's it. when they yeah. they gave people a number they'd call up a number to get yeah. a poem oh, fair enough and there'd be a little recorder stored it was in the 70s yeah. And they, I remember, remember dialing up the, the chart hits on the radio on the phone to hear what's to hear the records on the phone. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's content on demand. Do you, can I ask you in terms of technology and its development, and just you know the inspiration of something new that works really well? Does is that something that fulfills a lot of your time? Are you, you do you dedicate a lot of free time to researching that type of thing and learning about new technologies? Um, no, now my place is the opposite. Now my job in the music industry is to be a repository of how things used to be done. So I collect vintage equipment, I collect vintage recording techniques, I collect s singers who sound who sing the way that rock singers sang in the 80s or the way that soul singers sang in the, in the 60s. Yeah. I'm now uh, backward-looking uh, because everybody is on the cutting edge and everyone is following the new stuff. Everyone's forgetting how you mic up a string section to make it sound like chic. Sure, or, yeah. You know, so I, I, I'm the opposite. But back then, well, you talk, we're talking about saving the world, not saving the world, but changing the world. We knew as the people, it was a very exciting time, the early days of the internet industry, before it became this sort of cliche of the dot-com company, but the very <laughs> early versions of those companies, we knew with absolute confidence that when you looked at the history of human development, you'd see, you know, Iron Age, Stone Age, Iron Age, sure. um, industrial agricultural revolution, yeah. revolution, industrial revolution, yeah. information yeah. revolution, yeah. and that we were changing the world. It would never go back. It would all be changed because of, and you could name 
like, you know, 30 people who were good enough to build the servers and do yeah. and so on. And that's the thing that breaks your soul in the corporate environment. It's like, oh, what the hell is it all for? You know, I'm getting a bollockings. We haven't sold enough Pringles. You know, <laughs> you know our widgets being sold, made cheaper in China. So, so many people listening to this podcast have got that a life where they serve another, a master yeah. whose agenda is not aligned with something like saving the world or doing something for humanity or changing the world for a positive end. Right. Yeah. So what advice would you give to someone for that balance? Get out, (laughs) get out. But if they all get life, you only got one of them. There's a great um, new podcast, uh, Richie Eduardi and Russell Brand. Yeah. And what a dream I, team. <laughs> uh, he, uh, Eduardi has just written a book called Eduardi on Top yeah. and he dissects a film. And basically part of the analysis is almost like um, looking at when, when people consume these movies that are kind of popular movies nowadays, mm. there is a trope, an arc to a lot of them, which is the person has a dream mm gets sucked into a different type of life they don't want to do because of something or other, mm-hmm. then re-engages with the dream, and then everyone says, and now you're rewarded for you because you followed your dream. But the reality of a lot of people's lives is they do have to sacrifice a lot of their working day mm. to provide money to then uh, support all the other advent- uh, endeavours they have. Oh, so, ma- so many things come from this. The first one is... You asked me why I didn't succeed in the music or something before. The reason I am now successful as a music musician. Okay, I, I, okay, I'm coy about talking about it. I have I run a, a music business. It's basically me, and it has a turnover of half a million pounds a year. Okay, <laughs> and I am no better a musician than uh, you know a saxophone player who's been to Berkeley School of Music and practicing to play Coltrane and so on, and is still trying to get paid hundred quid to go and do a gig. What I the reason that I um, commercially successful yeah. is the things I learnt in a corporate environment, which is okay. Let me just tell you the most important thing you need to know in, in commerce is product marketing. So, product marketing is you need to make a thing that fulfills two criteria. One, you're better at making it than anyone else; otherwise, someone else would be better at it than you. And two, no one else. Well, people want it. Okay, yeah. right. So. So that's product marketing. Oh, we've come up with this. We've found a market segment that isn't exploited or there's a market segment that's there, but we can do the best product. Sure. So musicians just don't think like this. No. So it's like, okay, I'm making Tropical House. It's like, so is everyone else. How are you going to break through? You've got to, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, why make the same thing everyone else is making? Because that, that, that's already done. Or... I've, I'm making this, uh, I'm really into this particularly form of art crossover funk. It's like, great, you're brilliant at it, but no one really wants to listen to it. So if you want to make a living in the arts, you know, you have, that's, that's one lesson you learn is make a thing that you're good at that people want. Yeah. Otherwise, you, you know, you're, 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 you're putting yourself into a niche, which is fine, but then you'll have to fund the niche by having a day job or something like that. Yeah. There was another aspect of this. So here's so my, like, okay, the journey is the destination. I couldn't have achieved what I've achieved in music without having learned, taking something from the corporate environment along the way. And do you get equal pleasure from doing well at business and doing well at, you know, creating something new um, or something? I think so. Well, it's an interesting one. The creative thing is like a primal drive that creators have. And people always have this truism of, well, it must be great to get paid to do what you love. But it's, it's, a, it's a painful process. It's like giving birth. It's very bad for your mental health. It's very bad for your 
you, you, if you're a creator, you're alternating between the euphoria of creating something new and the crash and burn of it's never as good as you wanted it to be. No one ever appreciates it as much as they should do. It's never as successful as you believe it should be. Um, there's always more people that don't like your track than do like your track. So sure. always, the more successful you become, the more critics you find. Sure. No one unsuccessful has critics, but once you, the bigger you get, the more people who don't like it will tell you about it. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, okay, people say, oh, you must be great to get paid to do what you love. But actually, it's quite painful being a, being a creator. There's a lot of, t- there's a lot of downs collect- uh, connected to the ups. Um, you give so much of yourself, and then it's taken out of yourself. You've given it to someone else, and you, you're left with a hole inside you. The business side's a bit simpler because it's a basic gamification issue. It's like you're trying to score points. Sure. You know, If you literally look at how much money you've made, you can say it's, it's shallow, and that's not that's not what I'm driven by. A lot of what I'm doing is driven by wanting to create. But Are you reinvested back into the yeah, creation yeah. piece or, anyway. Or, or, or it's like I gave you, and also, I gave you a figure for turnover there. So sure. bear in mind, the turnover. I'm paying musicians. I'm paying artists. I'm paying graphic designers. I'm pay, so within sure. that, I'm generating income yeah. for other creatives. Absolutely. So I'm not saying that's my money that I no, keep. A- I'm saying that the thing that I am doing yeah. is ge- is generating that and distributing it amongst people who I think who are talented and I, I enjoy working with. Sure. But it's a lot simpler win the business side because it's just like, how well are we doing? Get a metric. But you can't do that with art. You can make something and you think it's brilliant and someone in Wisconsin has written you to you to say it, it's changed their life. But some critics online say it, it's rubbish and Radio 1 won't play it. And it's like, how do you assess whether it was worth making that piece of art? Yeah. You think it's good, you've changed someone's life, a lot of people are saying, man, I don't give or take. You know, as opposed to a business, it's like, is the, is the graph going up and to the right? Have I mean, we sold it, enough widgets? It, it's, yeah. it's going up and to the right, then, then, then we must be doing okay. Though to be fair, if this is a philosophical conversation about what drives you in life, um, we spend so much of our time doing things just because it's a better way to live your life than if I wanted to make money, I would, I'd be back in the corporate sector. What would you spend the money on if you made like five times as much doing a different job? Oh, the thing about earning money is you just buy the same things, but more expensive versions of it. Go on, give a, us an example. You know, you, you are great. I've got a hundred pound watch. Great. I've got a thousand pound watch. Great. I've got a 10,000 pound watch. And you end up with these people. But is that you? Are you the person with I the watch? It's human beings. What about you though? What do you spend it on? Oh, personally. Because I can't see you with a big old uh, Hublot five, seven grand watch and happy. Well, um, <laughs> I spend it that makes you happy. I mean, I like the environment around me, you know, the, to have house be nice, garden sure. be nice. I don't know. I, I think to be able to have peace when you want peace, um, especially peace from sa- uh, sounds as well. The, the, the most true thing that people – okay, so – I think my point I was making before, though, is really valid, though. People think, in some ways, if you earn money, and now I'm, like, nearing half a century alive. I've been, I've gone from being very financially uncomfortable to my first job on £13,000 a year to being, a, okay, I'm really going to the corporate thing. I ended up as a director of the world's 40th largest company along, along that to being unemployed again to becoming a musician yeah. to being a struggling musician to now you know, I've got business I'm working on lots of hits people pay me to do stuff it's pretty easy the, what you see through those waves is yeah yeah you can you can pay 100 pounds for a holiday 1000 pounds for a holiday 10000 pounds for a holiday 100000 pounds for a holiday as a human you don't take away 100 that yeah that much more Diminishing happiness returns. <laughs> you know essentially you have the same amount of good time just right. in the manner which 
And it's still you on holiday. It's still you on holiday. You can't run away, can't run away from that. It is true that, um, uh, and I've heard a lot of rock stars say this in the press, you know, to not have to worry about it. It's, you know. About what? About, uh, worry about how much money's in the bank account. That's the, the biggest, it's like one stress out of your life. My life is full of a, a lot of stresses of different things. I, in fact, I'm very stressed most of the time. Can I ask um, why? Um, I think it's the relent. At the end of the day, though, you know, working music, dream job, I've still got clients and I've got to make them happy and I've got workload and I've got, I've been doing this for long enough. A lot of people want me to do stuff. Sure. There's never, I never get closure on anything. The moment I've finished one job, there's 10 more to get on with, five of which are asking why I haven't answered the email they sent me a week ago asking why I haven't handed it in yet. Yeah. You know, and I think it's a downside of both the sort of, craft and art side of what I do is you never really get to a point where you sit down and go, ah, oh, that's it. That's been now. done. Yeah. As an artist, yeah. maybe if you like finish an album, there's a bit of that, but you're still going, oh, there's all these songs I haven't, I want to, you know, there's still, it's, you haven't got all the pus out of the, the, the boil yet, which is, what, <laughs> which is how, I, how I see analogy. songwriting. It's like this pain inside you you've got to let out. Um, there's always that's more amazing. pus building up in the boil that you've got to get rid of. And then on the, you know, the commercial side, if you're doing your job properly, there's more people asking you to do more stuff. At the moment, I'm really struggling with that um, uh, discussion, you know, how do you say no? Right, that's, um, that's the ultimate you're talking about. I have too much to do. And people say, oh, you've got to, uh, you just got to turn some people away. But if your job is to solve people's problems, I think what actually drives me emotionally day to day is I like solving people's problems. So again, we talk back about what musicians need to learn or people in the arts need to learn about how to make a living. They're always concentrating on either being cool or expressing themselves artistically, but you always have to be solving someone's problem. That's what people pay you for. It's only one thing people pay you for. It's like solving a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so... That's my emotional driver is somebody has this thing they need me to do. I need to do it so that I've helped them achieve their thing. And I feel really bad about not helping someone, just at some kind of core primal animal yeah. level. And so people say, oh, just turn some work away. But if someone's been coming to your shop for 10 years buying bananas from you, yeah. and then two, two people come into the shop and they both say, can I have some bananas from you? And you go to one of them, yeah, I'll sell you some bananas. And the other one you go... I'm too busy to sell you bananas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, well, why me? Why are yeah. you what you selling them bananas? You know, sure. it's a personal relationship. You, people are relying on you to do something. Sure. You know, turn away. That, they're not going to come back to the shop and you've let them down. When I have that with a client, when I experience that, I, um, I, there is a sense of duty that flares mm. up in me, mm. but also a huge emotional positive payoff when I say, yes, fuck it, I'll do it. I'll, I'll come back. So I came in off holiday for three days, a couple of weeks back, mm. And I knew I should be at home, inverted commas, relaxing. Yeah. But I knew I was happier having done that. Is that not what you're experiencing still? At the same time that it's a enduring, never-ending pain, you're also still co-opting it yourself. It's been getting to a point where I'm trying to do too much in my life. And the reason is I'm trying to balance out uh, the professional side of people hire me to do stuff and I deliver it for them. And expressing myself as an artist, and I do that as two artists, and the Young Punks and them, the Tribe of Good. Yeah. And there's family That's life and name, the real world, and you know, parents with illnesses, and you know, all mm. the stuff that happens in life. Sure. There's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough room in my mind for it. I have to thin it out. And the obvious thing to cut out is the, your creative side. Because yeah. it's like, that's the, unne- that's the, it's a bit, it's, secretly it's a hobby, but you convince your family that it's your job. But isn't know? it your mental health? 
well, that's the bit that's most damaging to the mental health. Well, that's why I'm... Yeah, so, yeah. so writing music is, number one, catharsis. Number two, if it goes anywhere else, then fantastic. Well, this is the question. So what, what, what's of value? So right. it's like the thing you should cut out if you did an economic analysis is the... When you make music creatively, the chances are it will lose you money because you have to fund everything yourself right. these days and do all the work yourself. But it could be the thing that makes you a millionaire. And then the stuff where you get paid every you know paid per job is that well it's not going to make you a millionaire but you'll definitely have the mortgage paid and that's and but it's i think it's appropriate to do a risk spreading approach in fact it's what i recommend to anyone in the creative industries yeah you've got one line of work where your primary aim is to express yourself creatively and and not care if it makes any money and another line of work where your aim is to use your skills to help someone else deliver their vision and you get paid for it yep. and you don't take any emotional connection it's like if you want it to sound like that sound like that how easy is that for you to do that last bit quite easy because you've trained yourself or you're naturally good no it's it's a different mindset it's like i I believe in strong bosses it's like uh i don't it's like everyone having an opinion is just an absolute mess it's like if you're working with working for me i've decided what it sounds like and you make it sound the way i want to if i'm working for you just tell me what you want and i'll try my best to solve that problem perfect yeah in the middle of that it's quite uncomfortable of the drummer needs to have a song and Oh, yeah, yeah, you're totally. The guitar player wants his guitar up louder, and it's like, no, I'm in charge. I'm saying what it is, and, yeah. or and I'm pa- perfectly happy to be on the other side of that equation. Yeah, and say, I mean, I, I'm, to, I'm co-producing a Duke Dumont record at the moment. He just sent me the first pass of the whole album on the way here to the studio, and you know, it's rewarding to listen to that. And I've there's lots of things in there that wouldn't sound the way they do without what I've done. But his project, he says what stays, he says what goes. It's yeah. all bits where it's like, oh, I did something great for that and he's dumped it. Yeah. You know, or it's like, oh, I sent him all these things and he's he was so, you know, he's cut out 80% of what I handed him and I could never have had the guts to do it because I was too close to it, but he has done it. And, you know, I'm perfectly happy with saying it's his vision. I just need to understand what it is and, and help him make it. Yeah, you know your yeah. role in this. Yeah, that's yeah. a lot more comfortable than being the artist because the tortured artist trope is is true because you know who are you what are you trying to make what's it for what's the purpose of it all you know but do, do, doesn't all that pain come from people's pre pre um existing condition of a successful artist means one that a lot of people pay money to listen to that's one of the pressures there's another pressure which is independent of that is that um you know when i make when I come up with tracks, they're in my head first and I try and make them in the real world. And it's yeah. like the version in my head is better than the version in the real world. Or it's like, I want to sound like this and I try to sound like that and I fail at it. I make something that's different from it as I fail to do it. Now, I'm the only person on the planet who hears the failure. Everyone else just hears the success. Completely. I'm the one going, I wasn't meant to sound like that. Yeah. So these are personal challenge, those- challenges. Yeah, sort of... That's it. Van Gogh or something. A painting is never finished. You just stop painting it at some. You point. You abandon it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's you know the, the artist is the only person who knows what they were trying to make, yeah. and they've always failed to make what they were trying to make. So, is part of your development as an artist been that you you now know that you know the the concept of that's perfect, that's exactly what I wanted, or that's nothing like what I've wanted, but that 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 um, assessment is valueless. The most valuable part is the creation of it itself and the experience you go through and actually what you learn too. In the I creation. mean, I would say that, um, the things I make now I make because I enjoy the process of making them. Yeah. 
almost the, time, the moment they're finished, they become a burden. So while I'm making them, I'm like, you know what would be great? I'm going to get the string section totally. to these players. I'm going to mic it this way. Yeah. And we're going to, I'm going to work with this arranger and I'm going to like make it sound like that. And then I'll put it in that context and, no one, and, and I'm so enjoying it so much. Completely. Are you, do you go to a state of flow when yeah, you're there? Yeah, and, that, and that's brilliant. Yeah. The moment the thing's finished, it becomes a burden because then it's like, do we have, should we hire a PR company? A product, do we do club yeah. promo? Yeah. Uh, you know, how do we measure its success? I found, you know, on the creative sound recently, I found if I do something that's very, a personal expression that's very much me, yeah. like independent, us up, fuck everyone else. Yeah. This is how I do it. Yeah, yeah. It essentially gets ignored because, for example, these days you ha- it used to be radio. So you have to get on a Spotify playlist for anyone to pay attention, but the Spotify playlists are curated into genres. Sure. So if you make something that doesn't really fit, people will go, oh, that's good, but it's not going on the playlist. I recently made one one track where it's basically 80% generic what everyone else is doing and 20% oh, I'm, oh I, only I would do it that way. Yeah. And then that gets on a record label that's known and that gets on a playlist that's known and that's shooting up with all the plays. So basically the watered down weaker version of what I'm doing is having more impact in the world because it's closer to what other people are doing. So it fits into the buckets that already exist. So the question is, if my job as an artist is to express myself, yeah, as an artist, does your art exist because you've made it or does it exist at the moment that the the other person experiences it? If If you say it only... It just has to exist and no one has to hear it or see it or whatever your medium is, then you can just never show it to anyone else. But, you know, Duchamp and all of that is the art, the art, the, the whole meaning is at the moment that the person experiences it. Therefore, you can be analysing your art in terms of hard metrics of money, sales, playlists, and you can go, oh, but it's not about that. You know, someone like, okay, Bob Dylan releases a new record. It's not going on the Radio 1 playlist. That's no shame on Bob Dylan. He's been Bob Dylan, and that's, you know, you just need to be yourself. But equally, if it as an artist, you want people to experience the thing you've made because that's why you make it. You make it for someone to experience it. Okay. So once you've made it, it's like how much promotion of my own money and my own time yep. should I put into it to get an amount of people to experience it where I feel like the damn thing was worth doing in the first place. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to ask you the outcomes. So let's say you write a piece of music and you can choose one attribute for this music to have in terms of success. It reaches X amount of sales globally and it's recognized for the amount of people that have bought it or streamed it. Um, it can be, it can have personal meaning to somebody and they play it at somebody's funeral or wedding. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be attributed to a filmmaker and you can choose the filmmaker's next film mm-hmm. or another thing if you're choosing. Well, it's going to be the personal one, but it needs to be a sufficiently large number of person or people that that, that, it, that it felt... Feel- Feels like it's not just a one-to-one communication with your super fan because that's what artists. You get to a level that you get these. You get the super fans. Yeah, and the super fans are by definition crazy because. So you think? <laughs> I don't really mean that in a bad way. But if no, you're, no, what do you mean? They're like, so if they're distorted by their are, obsession if, with if you. They're that obsessed with you, and yeah. you, you know you're not the best person in the world, but they act like you are. <laughs> it's like when someone loves you, basically. Yeah, yeah it's, isn't it's, it? it because yeah. you could do terrible but things you, to your partner. You mean something but, to them, so yeah. that's fine, but it's like, oh, I'm not that good. I know I'm not um, that good, yeah. But um, at the points in, in so if you're in, so, so if you're in an artistic one. career, you'll have peaks and troughs, you know. In your peaks, there's a lot of people paying attention. In the troughs, you've just got the super fans left. Yeah. And on the one hand, it's great because it's like, oh, you know, it's um, 
you know, I had an email from on about my podcast last week, and it was someone said I've been listening to you for twelve years. It's more, you know, it's really great to hear you doing the podcast again. But it's more than the podcast to me. It feels like friends. It feels like a connection to a world that's outside of my day to day. Use. I'd like to say I feel they're getting better, even though you, you, oh. you know. And it's things like that. It's like, oh well, I've reached someone. Yeah, it was worth. I wasn't just shouting into a, an empty cave. Yeah. Um, and that's the sort of thing that does make it worthwhile. But then, if you get to a point where you think there's only the same three people liking all my Facebook posts, and it's like, am I just having like spending fifty percent of my life entertaining like a number of people I could get in one room? But you know, aren't, aren't we all shouting into a cave? Like our entire life is just shouting into a cave. It's meaningless, yeah, isn't it? Bother, and should we bother shouting into the cave? How much of it is, how do you separate the artist's need to create, which is, I think, uh, a honest intention I think so, with yeah. uh, the ego's need to have people going, you're brilliant, you're wonderful, we yeah, think yeah. you're great. And the two are always laced into each other and one's a positive aspect and one's a negative aspect. Right. Um, yeah. I, 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 yeah. I, how do you look at um, death? <laughs> Lastly, I'm just thinking, yeah. we just we just got over the mark. I don't. I could talk to you honestly for hours and hours. And if you'll do a follow up, if this goes well for you, then I'd love to next year. But um, I do want to end on a couple of things which are standard to the podcast. Okay. What is your relationship with death? I mean, fairly distant. Um, I you don't. Hope. I, I don't have a lot of death around around me at the moment in as much as uh, my grandparents died when I was quite young. Yeah. I, it's a long time since I've lost someone. Yeah. Uh, my parents are still with me. Great. And uh, I haven't lost much in the way of close friends. I'd say this year it's, it's raising its head more. It is three things this year. Uh, Philip Sadar from Cassius died. Yeah. I've worked. Uh, so Cassius was one of the first acts that really got me into electronic music. Yeah, so my, yeah. I went on the like driving holiday in an open top car through the south of France and the Alps with like the Phoenix album and Cassius 99 playing on the CD. That's the two CDs. And that's, and I'd be like staying overnight in a French village playing this French music. Right. And, and as I wasn't really into a lot of dance music, but when it intersected with the French mentality, it's like so important. Then I, I was lucky enough to work with um, uh, Philip Sadar over quite a lot of my career and he's the nicest I'm going straight I'd say nicest guy I've met in the music industry so he, he would I've got an, uh, an email from him from a, a week before he died and the email just says oh hi Hal the album's coming out next week couldn't have done it without you uh, you know many thanks for, for your contribution much love now that's not I'm not saying this about me like, hey I worked on the album sure. he'll have said that to lots of other people you looked at the the Twitter feeds yeah. when he died you can e tell. every Love. single producer is writing that that story i've worked on like a thousand records he's the only one who's ever just got in touch he's phoned me as well just i just want to say it sounds great thank yeah. you no one else has done that yeah and so um and for those who don't know he died in a, a fall accident like a couple of days before the release of his album nice guy great musician family man yeah child without a father uh, that sort of that's a death that uh, all, get all these celebrity deaths have been happening I think it's a generational thing where a lot of people who were pop culture in the 60s and 70s are now of an age where they die so when people go why is everyone dying it's like well because it's the first generation who became famous through pop culture right. as teenagers yeah. are now of an age where they're, you know, there's one dying every month sure. but you know I wasn't really upset by Bowie dying because 
death comes to all of us and he knew that as much as anyone and he can't say he wasted his life and his last work was God. a great expression of what was happening to yeah. him. I can't feel sad about it because, you know, it's coming to all of us. What better way to die could an artist have than yeah. making an album about your own death yeah. that correctly expresses what you're going through? Yeah. You know, I can't take away sadness from that really. But, you know, a personal friend who's still creating and I... You know, sudden death, sudden too. death, no, no reason. Yeah, that affected me. Also, I got um, someone in touch with me and like uh, found out that uh, I've only had like four girlfriends or something, and one of them died of a uh, of a sort of you know just a suddenly taken type thing uh, in the uh. past year, and you know, I hadn't seen spoken to them for twenty years. But yeah. someone who's been that close to you sure. to be gone. And now my parents are of an age where it's like every time you meet them, it's like, we all know this could be the last time. Equally, we could be together in 20 years. You just don't know. Yeah. It's interesting, my parent, my mother's relationship with death, hi, mother, if you're stalking me, is, um, you know, I think she always made the assumption that she would die at the same age as her mother, just like, oh, my mother was dead at this age. And so she, I felt like the a way- A lot of people do that. The way that yeah. she has lived her life has sort of been- in fear of that she, she like she yeah. could see yeah. the end coming yeah. and then it's like now she's older than her mother was when she died and i've always she's been on going, borrowed time always, but i've always been going it's like but this is this is demographics um <laughs> it's like you know healthcare's improved sure you, you know you know people live longer now that's right yeah you yeah. know and 60s and new 40 and 40s and new 20 and you know, all, all that kind of stuff yeah and i think now she's almost starting to see that it's like she'd been winding things down a bit. And yeah. now it's like, literally, you know, you, you, we could be here in 20 years. Yeah. You know, and I'm not at that. I think you, you approach that mortality yourself when you lose your parents and then you're the top of the, the, top of the tree and you're, you're, you're then the oldest in, 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 the, in the tree. Yeah. And I haven't had to approach that yet. But it's the interesting thing where... How do you assess what you do with the rest of your life when you start to see that you're more than halfway past it? Right. I mean, the first thing you do is panic and buy a red sports car. I bought a red Mustang. Um, but, um, <laughs> That's a good purchase. But, um, but, you know, but once you've got that out of the system, <laughs> you know, uh, how do you assess how you're spending your time? And the biggest thing that as I get older, I think when you're younger, you think you've got this sort of warm up of school and then you're like a grown up for a long time. Yeah. And then there's being old and there's this whole big grown-up phase. But I, literally there was an, an overlap between me having teenage spots and starting to lose my hair. There yeah. was, there was, <laughs> and that's how it is psychologically as well. That's there's right. never a moment where you go, well, this is it. I'm grown up now. Yeah. There's, I'm sitting here and there's a mixture of, you know, what I'd really like to do now. Should we not go to work? Should we just go out and get some cocktails? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would that be nice? Yeah. yeah. Should we go and have a laugh? Right. <laughs> That's a teenager bit. And then equally, there's like uh, this sort of, oh, you know, we're near the end. How should I spend the rest of the time? What, what did you feel at so at 40? Mm -hmm. That's obviously a, a waypoint for a lot of people. I remember growing up seeing a card saying over the uh, 40s over the hill or something like mm -hmm. that trope, right? And then I remember thinking in my 30s, right, I need to I'm getting in to be an adult now got a mortgage i think at 30 mm. or early 30s um and then i've just turned 40 mm. july this year and it feels like there is a maybe 10 years of 
this type of life that we're experiencing mm-hmm. now, then maybe another 10 years, I just, you see someone interviewed and they look amazing at 60, yeah. like Stephen Fry's 62 and he's just, yeah. you know, enduring. And then you think, okay, but beyond 60, that's definitely being old, right? Well, this is the thing. It never feels like you thought it would. No. I mean, I remember being in a rock band competition when I was 18 and there was someone in one of the bands who was 24. And that felt like just so old. What is he doing? And indeed in the pop industry, you know, or or sports, football or something, you know, 26 past it. Yeah. And they're just children. Totally. this young people, you know, <laughs> you know, you, on the one hand, you know nothing when you're, yeah. you, you know, the things you think about relationships and life and, you know, you know nothing until you've been smashed in the face relentlessly. <laughs> and actually, the more it happens, the more chilled out you. Because when you've had, when yeah. you've had nothing bad happen to you, you're in a yeah. state of continuous anxiety because yeah. you think everything's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. once you get to a point, you get a divorce under your belt, and <laughs> you know, get sacked a few times, and you know, you have a heart it's attack. Like, you know what? It's this is just this is what this is what it's made up of. That's that's yeah. what life is made up of. And you always think there's going to be this grown-up moment, and, and then there never is that grown-up moment. But I don't. Forty didn't feel like forty to me. I think because I kind of rebooted in my early thirties. Yeah. I got married in my in my mid twenties in in good faith as I've you know been with someone for a few years we, we were living together and enjoying our company hey let's get married but you know one of the things you realise as you get older is you know the change that you can have in the first three years of a relationship you go, hey let's get married you can keep changing in the next next totally. few years and to a point where you barely recognise each other yeah and you know that's a lesson you learn in life and also that you know people you know, give up on relationships when they've hit a bad patch. But if you're together for 50 years, you can have like five years of hating each other's guts. But if the next 30 years are really enjoying each other's company, you know, plowing through it. And then it doesn't happen on its own. You've got to work on it. Sure. You know, and that's a lesson. Another lesson you learn in life is, you know, these things, it's it's that thing where romance films, the final scene's always the wedding. And it's like, no, that's the first scene. That's the beauty of the, it's an intermediate quality film, but by someone else I was at university with, Dan Mazer made the I Give It a Year movie with Stephen Merchant. um, Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's an okay Britcom. It's not a great movie, but um, it's the genius of the opening scene is the wedding. Yeah. And then it plays out the plot from then. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, and our culture does have this kind of, achieve the target and you'll be happy model. Yeah. And I think that's nowhere more so than for the whole of the you know past few hundred years that romance leads to a marriage, the marriage, now 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 you're happy. Yes. And it's like, no, you've just, you know, sort of bought the wreck of the house and you've got to start doing it up for the rest of your life, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, do, uh, do you have a countdown in your head? For, I'm just, um, I know I've got to wrap up soon because mm-hmm. I've gone a little bit over, but my last, kind of last mm-hmm. question, do you have like a countdown in your head? Countdown. To, yeah, towards like I want to do this before I get ill or die. Not really. I think I've been fairly lucky in in, in yeah. my life. Um, what I want to do, I think, is spend is yeah, it's a bit like the sort of the mindfulness thing. I want I want to be I I'm ve- I am very driven to achieve as much as I can, but um, achieving as much as you can just leaves you in a constant state of anxiety. And the lesson I at this point. I need to learn in my life is how to achieve less and not be stressed about the fact I know I could have done better because you need time doing nothing and you need time without pressure. I think, you know, maybe it's just like, it's a Protestant work ethic. I don't, I'm, I'm atheist. My parents are atheists, but what's my culture is, is probably yeah. that, you know, work and you will be rewarded. Yeah. Um, be, you know, 
being lazy is a sin. That 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 is culturally in me. I must do the most I can. Yeah. You're never satisfied doing the most you can. There's always more you could do. So what you, you have to learn to be happy with what you are doing. And um, isn't that the battle we're all after? That's great. Thank you so much for today. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you very it. much.